It's the 20th of November in the year of our salvation, 2009. You're back with Father John Zilsdorf on another podcast. We welcome back one more time Pope Paul VI, who died in 1978. In the last podcast, we heard his general audience of the 26th of November, 1969, when he was talking about the imminent implementation of the Novus Ordo, the newer form of Mass which went into effect on the first Sunday of Advent in 1969, 40 years ago. Well, in this podcast, we will step back yet one more week in time to the 19th of November when he begins talking about the Novus Ordo Nisei. Today we're going to hear uh, an audience given by Pope Paul VI on 19 November. It's a week and a half before the Novus Ordo goes into effect, the post-conciliar form of Holy Mass, the Holy Father speaking in general audience. And the following week, uh, he would speak again about this monumental change in the Church's life. That was the subject of my last podcast, podcast number 93. But right now, we're going to step back another week, 40 years and one day from the moment I am recording this, back to Pope Paul's attempt to explain what was going to take place. Now, as you listen, remember a historical context. We are at the end of the 1960s. It's a time of huge upheaval. During the summer, a man walked on the moon for the first time. The Vietnam War is in full tilt. The My Lai Massacre has taken place. The Cold War is grinding away at the spirit of the West. Remember that uh, President Richard Nixon won't have gone to China until 1972. Uh, at this time, Elvis is trying to make a comeback, and the Beatles have given their last public performance and then released their album Abbey Road. This was the first year that the 747 airplane was used. The Godfather, the novel by Mario Puzo, was published as a book. There is no movie yet. Uh, Charles de Gaulle stepped down from uh, being president of France. Uh, Midnight Cowboy, the movie, is in the movie theaters. In Argentina, there has been a general strike, and uh, the 
African colony Rhodesia has broken ties with the United Kingdom. This was the year that Prince Charles received his title as Prince of Wales. This was the year that Edward Kennedy drove off a bridge at Chappaquiddick. Out in California, the Charles Manson family has been terrorizing and killing. In Northern Ireland, the Apprentice Boys marched in Derry. This was the first year that Monty Python's Flying Circus had its first episodes. So did Sesame Street in the United States. This was the summer that the Miracle Mets won the World Series. Now the Second Vatican Council had just concluded a few years before. And during this time now, a chimeric spirit of the council is surging through the church with even greater force and speed than actual attention to the, the actual content of the documents. Humane Vitae was issued in 1968. In virtually every level of the church's life, many have been left with the impression that even Catholic doctrinal certainties and issues of morality and everything that haven't been questioned are now up for review and change, reconsideration. Just three months before this general audience, there was a festival held in upstate New York at a place called Woodstock. During the very week Pope Paul is speaking, the first color TV broadcast took place on England's BBC One. The salt meetings have salt one meetings began in Helsinki. And in this week, a quarter of a million Vietnam protesters converged on Washington, D.C. On the very day Pope Paul is speaking, holding this audience, Pele scores his 1,000th goal, and Apollo 12 has landed on the moon. Now, this is our context. And as we go forward, tune your ears for a few things as you listen to Paul's address. Now first, Paul clearly recognizes that this is a huge occurrence in the church. He recognizes that this is an innovation, a word that he will use several times. And I think we have to hear that word innovation with the same sort of anxiety and hesitation that many traditionalists do now especially when they are you know, speaking of the new mass as an innovation, and they always speak, use the word innovation in a bad light. Uh, innovation is not generally a good thing when it comes to doctrine or liturgy. At least, you know, that's what sane people understand. Innovation is fraught with danger. Uh, the Roman view of innovation is uh, one of suspicion, uh, the very term for revolution, which was always a bad thing in Roman eyes, is res novae, or novae in the old uh, uh, classical pronunciation, new things. That's how Leo XIII's famous social encyclical begins, doesn't it? Rerum novarum semel excitata cupidine. Once the desire for revolution has has been incited and so forth. So Paul, he leads with the acknowledgement that this is an innovation. He recognizes that we have been praying in the same way for four centuries, and now that's going to change. And I think that has to flavor your whole 
uh, listening to this. Try to get yourself into the, into the time. You know, what's going on? People are excited on the one hand, but they are apprehensive on another. Then he speaks about the catechesis and explanations which are supposed to take place in the church. And I'll leave it to you more seasoned Catholics to make observations about that. Uh, you will remember um, what happened, what actually happened, if there was catechesis, if there was preparation. My impression is that this part didn't really go very well. It didn't go as well as Paul hoped for. People in most places had the impression that, you know, yeah, well, changes were going to come. But then they happened overnight, and maybe uh, without a lot of explanation. So I'll leave that for others to talk about. Uh, listen, however, for Pope's, uh, the Pope's optimism. I think it's an optimi- it's, I think it's an anxious optimism or an optimistic anxiety. I'm not quite sure how to put that. He says that this is going to result in something very rich and beneficial, and he insists on this point. But he speaks, and I can't help but get this impression as I, as I read this through, that he has his own reservations. I think the Pope is frightened about what's happening, but he feels compelled to do it because of his commitment to the event of the Council, and that's a point that he stresses. Uh, Pope Paul mentions the adage, Lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of praying is the law of believing. Uh, the idea here is that uh, there's a reciprocal relationship between how we pray and what we believe. If we believe a certain thing, we will pray a certain way. If we pray a certain way, that comes to reinforce what we believe. Therefore, I mean, I think we have to conclude from this that if we change how we pray, we change how we believe. But Paul here is saying that this is not going to change the substance of our belief. Paul is saying that this is going to deepen our belief. And that's going to happen because of the fuller active participation of the people. And that's why the changes were made to the Mass. The simplification of the rites are meant to help people deepen their participation in the Holy, in Holy Mass. The idea being that if you deepen your participation of Mass, and if the substance of Mass isn't changed, then you are... You're, then your belief is going to deepen. And if your belief deepens, then everything about your Catholic life is going to change. Right? That's, I think, you know, what the reasoning is here. And we're doing this in the context that I gave you, the social context. Think about the historical context here. And what the Council was talking about is the interaction of the Church and Catholics with the modern world in our time. And so this is why Pope Paul insists with great force that this is the same Mass, and he repeats himself on this with great force. And he says, maybe a little defensively, you know, they didn't make these changes, these innovations on a whim. This is all worked out by experts. And listen also for three questions which he is trying to answer, uh, almost kind of like a defense and the three questions are, first, how could such a change be made? Second, what exactly are the changes? And third, what will be the results of this innovation? Now, with those pointers in mind, let's listen now to Pope Paul VI in general audience 40 years ago, just days before the Novus Ordo is put into force. It is the 19th of November in 1969.
our dear sons and daughters. We wish to draw your attention to an event about to occur in the Latin Catholic Church, the introduction of the liturgy of the new rite of the Mass. It will become obligatory in Italian dioceses from the first Sunday of Advent, which this year falls on November 30th. The Mass will be celebrated in a rather different manner from that in which we have been accustomed to celebrate it in the last four centuries, from the reign of St. Pius V, after the Council of Trent, down to the present. This change has something astonishing about it, something extraordinary. This is because the Mass is regarded as the traditional and untouchable expression of our religious worship and the authenticity of our faith. We ask ourselves, how could such a change be made? What effect will it have on those who attend Holy Mass? Answers will be given to these questions, and to others like them, arising from this innovation. You will hear the answers in all the churches. They will be amply repeated there, and in all religious publications, in all schools where Christian doctrine is taught. We exhort you to pay attention to them. In that way, you will be able to get a clearer and deeper idea of the stupendous and mysterious notion of the Mass. But in this brief and simple discourse, we will try only to relieve your minds of the first spontaneous difficulties which this change arouses. We will do so in relation to the first three questions which immediately occur to the mind because of it. How could such a change be made? Answer. It is due to the will expressed by the ecumenical council held not long ago. The council decreed, quote, The right of the Mass is to be revised in such a way that the intrinsic nature and purpose of its several parts, as also the connection between them, can be more clearly manifested, and that devout and active participation by the faithful can be more easily accomplished. For this purpose, the rites are to be simplified, while due care is taken to preserve their substance. Elements which, with the passage of time, came to be duplicated or were added with but little advantage, are now to be discarded. Where opportunity allows or necessity demands, other elements which have suffered injury through accidents of history are now to be restored to the earlier norm of the Holy Fathers. Close quote. The reform which is about to be brought into being is therefore a response to an authoritative mandate from the Church. It is an act of obedience. It is an act of coherence of the Church with herself. It is a step forward for her authentic tradition. It is a demonstration of fidelity and vitality to which we all must give prompt assent. It is not an arbitrary act. It is not a transitory or optional experiment. It is not some dilettante's improvisation. It is a law. It has been thought out by authoritative experts of sacred liturgy. It has been discussed and meditated upon for a long time. We shall do well to accept it with joyful interest 
and put it into practice punctually, unanimously, and carefully. This reform puts an end to uncertainties, to discussions, to arbitrary abuses. It calls us back to that uniformity of rights and feeling proper to the Catholic Church, the heir and continuation of that first Christian community, which was all, quote, one single heart and a single soul, close quote. The choral character of the Church's prayer is one of the strengths of her unity and her Catholicity. The change about to be made must not break up that choral character or disturb it. It ought to confirm it and make it resound with a new spirit, the spirit of her youth. The second question is, what exactly are the changes? You will see for yourselves that they consist of many new directions for celebrating the rites, especially at the beginning. These will call for a certain amount of attention and care. Personal devotion and community sense will make it easy and pleasant to observe these new rules. But keep this clearly in mind. Nothing has been changed of the substance of our traditional Mass. Perhaps some may allow themselves to be carried away by the impression made by some particular ceremony or additional rubric, and thus think that they conceal some alteration or diminution of truths which were acquired by the Catholic faith forever and are sanctioned by it. They might come to believe that the equation between the law of prayer, lex orandi, and the law of faith, lex credendi, is compromised as well. It is not so, absolutely not. Above all, because the right and the relative rubric are not in themselves a dogmatic definition. Their theological qualification may vary in different degrees according to the liturgical context to which they refer. They are gestures and terms relating to a religious action experienced and living of an indescribable mystery of divine presence, not always expressed in a universal way. Only theological criticism can analyze this action and express it in logically satisfying doctrinal formulas. The mass of the new rite is and remains the same mass we have always had. If anything, its sameness has been brought out more clearly in some respects. The unity of the Lord's Supper, of the sacrifice on the cross, of the representation and the renewal of both in the Mass, is inviolably affirmed and celebrated in the new rite, just as they were in the old. The Mass is and remains the memorial of Christ's Last Supper. At that supper the Lord changed the bread and wine into his body and his blood, and instituted the sacrifice of the New Testament. He willed that the sacrifice should be identically renewed by the power of his priesthood conferred on the apostles. Only the manner of offering is different, namely, an unbloody and sacramental manner, and it is offered in perennial memory of himself until his final return. In the new rite, you will find the relationship between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, strictly so called, brought out more clearly, 
as if the latter were the practical response to the former. You will find how much the assembly of the faithful is called upon to participate in the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice, and how in the Mass they are and fully feel themselves the Church. You will also see other marvelous features of our Mass. But do not think that these things are aimed at altering its genuine and traditional essence. Rather, try to see how the Church desires to give greater efficacy to her liturgical message through this new and more expansive liturgical language, how she wishes to bring home the message to each of her faithful and to the whole body of the people of God in a more direct and pastoral way. In like manner, we reply to the third question. What will be the results of this innovation? The results expected, or rather desired, are that the faithful will participate in the liturgical mystery with more understanding, in a more practical, a more enjoyable, and more sanctifying way. That is, they will hear the word of God which lives and echoes down the centuries and in our individual souls, and they will likewise share in the mystical reality of Christ's sacramental and propitiatory sacrifice. So do not let us talk about the new Mass. Let us rather speak of the new epoch in the Church's life with our apostolic benediction. was Pope Paul VI speaking in a general audience on the 19th of November in 1969. It's just uh, days before the implementation of the Novus Ordo Mise, the new form of Mass. Now I think it's uh, useful to return to what Pope Paul was thinking about at that time. We have 40 years of hindsight now. We are uh, our experience of, of, of four decades uh, has uh, has brought us, you know, realization that there have been failures and uh, also advances. So we have to, I think, return to his questions. How could such a change be made? What exactly are the changes, and what will be the results of this innovation? Now, I can't delve into those three questions now. Maybe we can in future time. But uh, clearly, I think one of the most important things that we have to consider when how you know we look at how such changes could be made is that an ecumenical council required the changes be made and the council fathers also gave reasons for their changes uh, they wanted people to participate at holy mass with 
a fuller, you know, deeper active participation. So they make these recommendations, but the group entrusted with putting those recommendations uh, into concrete form, uh, and I think this is indisputable, went far beyond the mandate given to them by the council. And Pope Paul let them do this and then ratified what they did. And so therefore they did what they did with the full force of the church's highest authorities uh, all to back them, uh, the Pope and then ecumenical council. And I think this point is very important because when you read the book that came out under the name of Archbishop Piero Marini, the former master of ceremonies uh, during the time of John Paul II and then uh, for a while uh, for Benedict XVI, the, uh, Marini's book called A Challenging Reform, Realizing the Vision of the Liturgical Renewal. When you read his book, you can get a, an idea about the inner workings and thoughts of the concilium. That's the group that was tasked by the council fathers with making concrete the few reforms that the fathers gave them. And this concilium was run by uh, Father Annibali Bugnini and Cardinal Lercaro. But this book describes that uh, Bugnini and Lercaro had their own uh, agenda going on also. They had uh, a very different sense of the goal of the reform than that which Paul VI is explaining in his audience in this week that we just heard, and also the following week, which I did in my last podcast. This is not to say that they also you know, weren't thinking about you know, active participation and various things, but they had another agenda as well. And Marini's book makes it very plain that it was part of the agenda of both Bunini and Lercaro to diminish the power and decentralize the power of the Holy See and redistribute it, if we can use material terms like that, to regional conferences of bishops. And they also clearly saw that what they were doing was going to have profound doctrinal impact. They were going to make a shift away from the theology of the Council of Trent. In other words, on many levels, they were using a liturgical rupture to create a rupture in doctrine and also uh, discipline insofar as the, the church's structures and so forth are concerned, which have their own doctrinal impact. So Marini describes the attitude of the concilium at the very moment when it shifted from being an informal committee that was set up to being an official entity vested with uh, its mission. And we can turn to that in Marini's book, looking at page 45 to 46. Let's listen uh, to what the author has to say about what the Concilium thought it was doing, what its task was. The Concilium's first plenary session marked the end of the preparatory work that Lercaro and Bunini had carried out patiently and humbly since October 1963 with the Pope's support. The meeting consisted essentially of communicating the results already achieved. 
the authority of the concilium, the methodology that the office would use, and the people who were to be involved in the work of the reform. Subsequent meetings would examine the drafts for the new liturgical books or of new documents. The initial meeting provided the members with a chance to meet one another and to get an idea of the work ahead. However, the unanimous approval given by the members to the President's proposals and to the plan for the execution of the reform presented by the Secretary launched the work of the Concilium into the future and marked the official beginning of its activity. Among the aspects that characterized the first plenary session, one in particular should not be overlooked, the official aspect of the meeting. The pre-concilium, made up of just four people, was forced to meet informally. The plenary meeting, in contrast, brought together not only the Cardinal President and the Secretary, but also twenty-four members from many nations, the majority of whom were bishops. They met in public to begin one of the greatest liturgical reforms in the history of the Western Church. Unlike the reform after Trent, it was all the greater because it also dealt with doctrine. Due emphasis was given to the event in a report written by Bunini and published in the March 14 edition of L'Osservatore Romano. The Concilium had at last become a reality. There was a secretariat, there were members and experts, and finally a strategy for implementation had emerged. Most of the merit for the success was owed to the efforts of Lercaro and Bunini. Finally, their dream had become a reality. Footnote number four. Satisfaction for the institution of the Concilium as an international agency, independent of the curial congregations and in direct contact with the Pope, was high in international circles. Support for the Concilium was especially present in local churches, where the Curia was regarded with suspicion, and there were hopes for a profound renewal of the Church's structures as a result of the Council, etc. Now that gives you a taste of the amazing genesis of the new form of Holy Mass, the innovation that was about to renew the whole church in a renaissance of deepening of self-awareness and holiness. Now we might consider this whole event also with an eye to the categories ad intra and ad extra. In other words, concerned uh, from the point of view of being within the, the church herself and insofar as uh, what it says to the outside world and what the outside world says to the church. So those two groups are ad intra and ad extra. And I described the world, you know, what was going on uh, briefly at the very beginning of this podcast. And I'm guessing that uh, in his consideration of how the church was going to interact with that modern world, uh, that Pope Paul deemed that this was all an abs it was a necessary step. They had to accommodate the church, the way the church prayed, uh, for the needs of, of man in such a modern world. The idea was, uh, I'm very sure, that Catholics would then be able to shape the world accordingly. Of course, the danger was, and this is what 
you know, a danger in innovation and things like prayer and doctrine are going to cause. The danger was, and I think the Pope knew this, and I think you can hear it in his words, that maybe it would be the modern world that got logical priority rather than what the church had to offer that got logical priority. You see, these things, this dynamic, it takes place simultaneously, doesn't it? The world shapes us, but then we have the mission of shaping the world around us. These things are going on simultaneously. But the church has to have logical priority in this dynamic exchange. And I think the danger was, and I think, like I said, the Pope knew this, that it would be the world that got priority in shaping Catholics and even the structures and even the teachings of the church. And I think his war about humani vitae uh, let him you know, know in concrete terms you know, what the potential was here, what was going to happen now that we change the liturgy too. Forty years have passed since Pope Paul spoke those words, and I think it probably is still a little too early to judge the results. Nevertheless, that said, Pope Benedict XVI has opened up a new discourse in the Church, a new consideration of the Council, a new manner of interpretation of that momentous event, and one quite different from that which has prevailed uh, at the time of the council itself and in the years immediately after and then down through the four decades that have followed. Pope Benedict, who was a theological expert at the same council, and surely he's going to be the last pope that we're going to have who was a real player in the council, is offering us a, a new understanding of the council. Sure, as an innovation, but an innovation that has to be seen in continuity with tradition rather than as a rupture or break with tradition. And this is therefore also, perforce, Pope Benedict's liturgical vision. Paul had his liturgical vision and his, and his theological understanding and his perspective as Pope in the day that he was. Pope Benedict has his and I think this is one of the reasons why our Holy Father has given us Summorum Pontificum, the motu proprio, which is like the Emancipation Proclamation for the older form of Mass, the preconciliar form. And he's saying to us what was sacred for our forebears remains sacred for us now. And this is offered by Pope Benedict not as a further rupture, but as a corrective measure. You know, just as I, I get older and I have to have my glasses changed every once in a while, uh, this also gives us a new lens. It's a correction, so we can see things more clearly. Uh, it's a mid-course correction. You know, think about the astronauts that just landed on the moon. Maybe, uh, you know, along the way, the, the astronauts surely had to have mid-course corrections in their dark, long, cold journey to the unknown. Well, we have to do the same thing. Perhaps... We have to make mid-course corrections, which can be dramatic moments, but necessary, absolutely necessary.
So as you think about that change 40 years ago, I want you also to think about the huge change that is going to take place with the implementation of a new English translation of Holy Mass, which is going to be coming. Use the analogy of Pope Benedict XVI giving us back the older form of Holy Mass as a corrective. Think about Pope Paul and what he was trying to do with the Novus Ordo. Now we're going to have a better translation. And ask yourself about this new phenomenon of, of a new translation. Maybe the same questions that Pope Paul left us in his audience 40 years ago. How could such a change be made? What exactly are these changes? And what will be the results of this innovation? With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. I'm going to let those questions just hang there in the air for another time. Uh, please visit the blog, What Does the Prayer Really Say? WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. A little easier way to find it is FatherZonline.com. That's F E T H E R Z Online. Com. You can get involved in discussions there. You can find all the other podcasts, too, on the left sidebar. I have a, a menu item there, the podcast page, and you can go back and find all the other podcasts and listen to them. They're available to you there. Also, feel free to make a donation. I can't tell you how important they are. They're both a, kind of an uplift, a little shot in the arm along the way, but they also have great practical benefit. And I thank everyone who's been supportive of these podcasts in the past. But most importantly, please do me the kindness of praying for me as I will for you.
That's one small step for man, 